Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. All right, church family, we have finished Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, which was God's revelation of his glory to Moses, which Moses asked for, right? But I'm going to tell you, we're not done yet, right? We've got a little bit more that we're going to talk about because God's glory isn't just simply contained in those verses. It's really expounded in those verses, but we're not done yet with God's glory. So we're not done yet with this sermon series. I don't think we could ever really be done with this sermon series, but I do have a passage I want you to turn to. It's Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, that's in the New Testament. It's the first gospel and the first book of the New Testament. So turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Also, I want to go ahead and tell you that uh, we are just going to glance at that text. We're going to glance at a passage in Matthew 28. We're not going to be rooted deeply in it because the theme for this morning is going to be more thematic over all of Scripture, not just simply one single verse. And I'm comfortable with that because there are sermons in the New Testament that do that, that span a whole theme throughout the whole Bible. So I'm going to do just that this morning as well. So I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I hope you guys are comfortable with it as well. So what we've talked about in Exodus 34 so far have you usually are seen as like the primary characteristics of God, right? We, we talked about his love and his mercy and his like graciousness and he's being slow to anger. But I'll tell you, those are grouped as characteristics in a category called communicable traits. Can you say communicable? Communicable. Communicable. Well done. Yeah, it's a a really funny word. Communicable traits. Meaning we can share those almost, right? So I know people who are gracious and merciful. My dad was very slow to anger. He's very patient. And he was just, right? So those are traits that we can share with God. They're communicable, but there are traits about God that we cannot share, right? Those are incommunicable. Can you say incommunicable? Incommunicable. Wow, you're nailing it. I love this. These incommunicable characteristics of God are what make him unique and make him God. They make him supremely above all others, right? And so there's something about God, something that's incommunicable, that we can't be, that lays at the very root of who God is. It is the supreme characteristic of all. So there's a book, I've I've actually mentioned it a few times. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy, and it's by A.W. Tozer. I'd recommend it to you highly. A lot of our thoughts about these characteristics came from that book. And the first thing that he says, I'm actually gonna change to make it into a question. He makes a statement, but I'm gonna form it into a question. And that question is this, what is the highest thing that comes to mind when you think about God? You don't have to shout it out loud. You can just, in your head, answer. What is the highest thing that you think about God when you think about God? Some of you maybe have answered, well, he's creator, right? He's, he's the creator. And, and, and while that's true, is God at the very core of him creator? If so, then at God's ultimate, he needs to create in order to be who he is, which doesn't make himself existent. It makes him dependent on what he does. He would need a creation in order to create, in order to be who he is. Some of you maybe have answered, well, he's, he's the ruler, right? He is primarily ruler of all creation. Well, 
Take that to its end, right? In order to be who he is, he needed a creation in order to rule to be who he is. So for all God's cosmic power and authority, he kind of comes across more pitifully weak if he needs us to be who he is. And if you take that even further, if God primarily at his core is like supposed to be this ruler of all creation, then Christopher Hitchens, he's a renowned atheist, he was right to conclude that then if that's who God really is, if he's just primarily ruler, then he's this Stalin in the sky. He's this big brother who's always just going to hold you accountable to his rules. And then if the problem is that we've broken his rules, the only kind of salvation that God can offer really is just to treat me like we had kept the rules. To forgive us and say, well, you did keep the rules in some way. But take that to its end. If that's what really God is, and if that's really the core of the gospel, then the most that you and I can get to in our relationship with God is the same kind of relationship with a traffic cop. All right, think about it. How many of you, this is where I need vulnerability. We are totally authentic in this church. How many of you have been pulled over for a traffic violation that you know you did? Right, yeah, mm-hmm, it's okay. I can say I've not been pulled over. I think I've said that before. I'm, I'm, and I'll be pulled over this week, All right? How many of you were let off with a warning? Right? So when you felt that, when that was your experience, when you knew you were breaking the rules, you got caught and the law keeper came in and said, I'm just going to let you off with a warning. Go have a great day. Did you leave that experience just exalting in love for that traffic cop? Like, was your heart singing, man, I love that guy. No, right? Could you hardly know the dude? He just let you off the hook. So at most, you can have gratitude for that traffic cop, but you can't have love. And if God then is primarily ruler, and the problem is that we broke his rules, and the solution is that he forgave us and counts us as rule keepers, the most we can get for him is gratitude. And ironically enough, if that's the case, then we can't actually get to his supreme command, which is to love the Lord your God. So then we break another rule. You see, what you think about God in his highest is what determines how you relate to him. So what is it that can get us to love God for who he is that's not dependent upon us? What is it that can get us to love God, to desire him, to totally be about him and for him? Well, the answer is found in how God primarily reveals himself, right? Primarily how he reveals himself. So here's the question that we need to ask. How did Jesus reveal God to be? What was he primarily revealed as in the person of Jesus? He referred to God as his what? Father, right? Jesus didn't primarily reveal God ultimately to be creator or ruler, but father. And this is why Jesus is the son, right? It says it all. Being a son means he must then have a father. So God reveals himself first and foremost as a father 
And if God's a father, what must be true? He's got to have a son. He's got to have some sort of child, right? It must be true that he has a son that he has begotten if he's going to be father. Think about it this way. If some dude walked in here, he just started totally saying, hey, man, I love being a dad. I love it. But he has no kids. Psychologists have diagnosis for that, right? That's just not right. You can't say that I'm a dad and not have children. So, so for God to be father, it must be true then that he has son. So if God does have a son, then he is also father. And it turns out that's exactly what scripture reveals him as. This is, this is the, the truth for the day. And that is this, that God is triune. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. God is triune, a.k.a. the Trinity, a.k.a. the three in one, a.k.a. the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And it turns out that this characteristic is the primary glory of God, out of which everything else flows. In fact, this truth right here, this Trinity truth is the most Orthodox belief, healthy, ortho being health, right? Orthodox belief that we must hold to as Christians in order for us to actually be considered Christians, right? The Athanasian Creed confirms this. It says this, whosoever will be saved, it should be up. Let's go. Almost there. Hold on. This is the week. This is the week. All right, there. So whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the orthodox faith. That is that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So here's, here's the thing, right? Like you and I, we, we could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. We could also believe that he was brought back to life in his bodily resurrection. We can even believe that salvation ultimately is by grace. But if we do not believe in this God who is triune, then quite simply, we are not Christian. Now, what I just said, right? What this is affirming, it's rather heavy. It's kind of weighty. It kind of feels, oh, really? Wow, it's, it's that important. And it kind of unnerves us. Not because we don't agree with scripture. I think we all, would all agree that scripture does talk about God as triune. Like we can affirm that. It's not heavy because of that. It's heavy because it's so hard to comprehend. And it's, it's heavy because it's really hard to feel confident about a belief in something that is super difficult to understand. God's trinity is hard. It is, it is far above us. And because when we think of God being triune, the word God itself here in the West means what? It means one God. That's, that's our cultural understanding. In, in, in other cultures, it can be multiple gods, but in our cultural understanding, it can mean one God. And so when we say that, well, God is three persons, it's like we're trying to squeeze in two extra persons into what we already think about God. So it's kind of difficult and that's hard. And what do we do with hard things? They get left. Right? Usually they maybe get put as an appendix or something, right? Not like the organ or something, but like in a book. But looking at the Trinity, looking at this, 
isn't like walking off of the map into unchartable areas of pointless speculation. No, one author says it this way, in pressing into the Trinity, whenever we press hard into the Trinity, we are gazing upon the very beauty of the Lord. And so, so we know we should at least consider this. We know that this should at least have some weight in our thought processes. And so in order for us to try to get around this or get to this, we come up with all sorts of illustrations on how to try to get this communicator or at least how to understand this. So I'm gonna just throw out a question and I, I would love some response. What are some ways that you illustrate the Godhead. What are some ways that you've tried to understand through illustrating using created things? What are some ways that you use to illustrate the Trinity? Some, some, maybe some common illustrations you maybe have heard. What do you got? Throw them out. The apple. The, the apple. The apple. Okay. What else? What else do we use? Water. Yeah, water. The the three states of water. Guys, so, so there's, there's a lot of illustrations out there. I want to walk through a teeny few of them and show you how they're all just terrible, okay? So this is, this is where we're going real quick. So I, I, we heard water, H2O, dihydrogen monoxide. Those are molecules that can exist in three different states. Ice, solid, liquid, water, and gas, steam. And so in other words, we're trying to communicate that God, this father, was once this icy person, but once you turn up the heat a little bit, he melts down and gets a little bit warm and fuzzy and you get the sun. And then ultimately, if you turn the heat up really high, you get this steamy spirit who comes along, right? Or, or we, see, we see God as, uh, we, some, some people use the illustration of a man, right? How I as a man can be a, a father, a husband, and an employer or a pastor, right? Those are, those are, those are different roles that I take on. But guys, those, that, those illustrations fit under a heresy called modalism. Can you say modalism? modalism. Try to say it with an Irish accent. Modalism, right? Uh, some guys call it moodalism. So we can all sound like cows. Let's say it, moodalism. In other words, God has different modes or different moods. Right? This God is one person who has three different ways he operates. But that, that was condemned a long time ago. That is false. That is not how scripture reveals him. We've also seen uh, the illustration used of a three-leaf clover, right? A three-leaff clover, or maybe even an eggshell, right? An egg, where you have the shell, you have the egg whites, and then you have the yolk that makes the egg. Well, does that work really well? No, that's a heresy called partialism. Can you say partialism? Partialism. All right, so this is the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God comprising one-third of the divine. So they're all one-third God, but that's not what Scripture says either. And then we also have one very popular but misunderstood illustration, and that's the Son, right? We can look outside and see the sun. You have the star, and the star itself creates both light and heat. Right? You have the, it's a, it, it sounds good on the front, but when you dig deep, you're actually wandering off into Arianism. That's another heresy. Can you say Arianism? Arianism. Again, Irish. Arianism. That was not Irish. Anyways, 
So you have, you have the Son and the Spirit who are creations of the Father and not one in nature with the Father. Just like light and heat are creations of the star, the sun. So, so those, are, those are helpful illustrations to show us how not to think about the Godhead. So don't think that we should just throw those out and say, well, I can't ever talk about those things. No, we can talk about them, but you kind of need to put them in the context of, we can't think of God this way. This is, they're not sufficient enough. But ultimately, we can keep trying and trying and trying, finding different ways to try to illustrate this idea that God is triune, and it just won't work. Because we cannot use comprehensible creation to illustrate the existence of an incomprehensible infinite God. It's just going to fall apart every time. Because God is above creation. So, along the way in church history, there's been a lot of helpful ways on how to think about this idea that God is Trinity. Now, these are not, in addition to Scripture, these are just attempts at explaining how Scripture has revealed God to be as he is. So uh, one of the ways that it happened was first developing the word itself, Trinity. Can you say Trinity? Trinity. Trinity. Yeah. So Trinity, basically at its roots, means tri-unity, the three and one. That's what we're talking about when we say Trinity. And the word Trinity actually summarizes three main statements that communicate ultimately what we're trying to say about who God is or how he exists. And and these next three statements, I would really strongly encourage you to lock them away, right? Or lock them away, right? In one way, go out with these statements. And that's this. First, that God is three persons. Second, each person is fully God. And third, there is one God. You cannot ignore one to the inclusion of the other two. And you cannot say that one is your favorite. All three have to be perfectly in unity. So God is three persons, meaning each person is distinct. The father is not the son The Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. Each person is distinct from the other. And then each person, while they are distinct, are equally fully God. One isn't lesser than the other. One isn't more insignificant than the other. All of them have the same value or significance. All of them are equally deserving of our affection and our devotion. Now, this may tread on some some hard waters here, but... I grew up in a kind of culture that kind of diminished the existence or the significance of the spirit of God to the inclusion of the father and the son. And I found that that left me crippled for a lot of my life. We cannot, we cannot dismiss the spirit to the inclusion of the father and the son only. We must include all three into our worship and our understanding of who God is because each person is fully God. And we get to this third point. It says, there is one God. Woo! What do we do with that, right? There are three persons of the Trinity, and those three are one in essence, one in their essential nature. God is only one existence. He is only one being, ontologically speaking. He's only one God. So if you want a really fancy way to think about all this, go back to the Athanasian Creed, which says, we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. 
That's a lot, right? It's kind of heavy. It's a lot to try to memorize. Don't worry about it. Just get those three points down. Because in all of this, in all of this, if we want to find some way that we can communicate or understand this, some way to illustrate it, I told you before that everything eventually falls apart, but there's one way that God gave us to illustrate this, this unity, this relationship, this Trinity. There's one way he gave it to us and how to illustrate, and it actually exists in the first and second chapters of the first first book of the Bible, Genesis. Think about it. God creates all creation. He creates Male and female, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make him male and female. Notice how God uses the plural there because in page one of the Bible, he's already revealing he is a plurality. He is a trinity, but he makes Adam and Eve, right? And then in Genesis two, we kind of see more about that, right? God creates Eve out of Adam, right? So she is, she is uh, bones of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She is distinct Yet out of him, she has all her life and being from Adam. She comes from his side. She has bones of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And what do the two become? The two become one in what? Marriage. You ever thought about that? Marriage is designed to reveal the Trinity. The two persons becoming one. So this marriage relationship, it pictures the relationship of the Trinity, which is why we as Christians, for those of you who are unfamiliar with why we hold so valuable marriage itself as one man and one woman for all of life in a covenant relationship. The reason why we hold that supremely valuable is because any alteration of that picture, of that marriage, any alteration ultimately effaces the chief image in creation that depicts the nature of God as Trinity. Do you understand that? That's why we hold so valuable marriage. And then do you also understand why divorce can be so heartbreaking to God? So if the Trinity is so essential to the character of God, then then where do we see it in scripture, right? Now, let me pause here, right? We've, We've done a lot of this and we're probably hurting already. The point of this morning is not to do what I'm about to do, right? The point of this morning is to show you how God being a Trinity affects how we think about everything that we've talked about for the last 10 weeks. Everything that we've seen from Exodus 34. So what I'm about to do is gonna be really condensed explaining to you how the Trinity is revealed partially in the Old Testament and fully in the New Testament. I'm gonna give you some examples, but I'm not giving you all the examples. I'm only giving you some that I think are pretty strong. So the point of this morning is not to prove the existence of the Trinity. You can go do that on your own. Good luck. The point of this morning is ultimately show you how the Trinity influences everything that we've been talking about. But we can't do that without you actually being convinced in the slightest that God is Trinity. So let me me first start off in the Old Testament. Verse one, Genesis one. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God hovered over the water. There's Trinity, part one. We also see throughout Old Testament that God reveals himself in the plural. I already mentioned that earlier. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's an image of a personality of uh, three persons there, more than one, right? We see it in Genesis 3, 22. He says, the man has become like one of us. We see it in Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, when God's saying, whom shall I send? Who shall go for, not me, us, right? So we see kind of the plural, but that's not the strongest argument. We see in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, we see this, right? This is really cool. We know this, the Lord Our God, the Lord, is one, right? When we think of the word one, we think what? Numerically, but that's not the Hebrew. There is another word in the Hebrew that numerically means one. This means unity. Our God is unity. And this, the word one here is the same word that God used to describe Adam and Eve, and the two shall become one, unity. Then in Psalm chapter 110, verse one, this is, this is a really strong one because this is the reference that Jesus used to confound the Jews. And it's also the example that Peter gave in his sermon to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of this passage. Check this out. Psalm 110, verse one. This is the declaration of the Lord, aka Yahweh, you know, the guy that we experienced in Exodus 34? To my Lord, this is David talking, to my Lord, my Adonai, my master, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David is not receiving this command. David is seeing that Yahweh is talking to his master, that he's going to be exalted to God's right hand. So we see this trinity over and over again in the Old Testament, but it's almost vague until we get to the New Testament. And one of the first things we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is Jesus' baptism, right? Jesus, he gets wet, he comes back out, and what happens? The heaven's like, oh! open up the spirit. That was a great high pitch. The spirit descends, right? The spirit comes down and anoints Jesus. And then this heavenly voice, this fatherly voice reveals, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, God is already confirming that this kingdom is ruled by the Trinity. In second Corinthians, 13 verse 14, it says, the, notice the Trinity here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, aka the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Can you see the roles as well? Grace of Jesus, the love of God. Wouldn't we actually flip that, the love of Jesus and the grace of God? But no, it's the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the Intimate fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. And then we get to our passage in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. So you should already be there. If you've already lost it, don't worry. Matthew 28, verse 19, right? We see Jesus issue this great commission to his church that they are to be about going and making disciples, right? And he roots this mission in the Trinity, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So did you ever realize that when we quote our mission to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that is rooted in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And that mission is rooted in the very Trinity of God. It's directly connected to the deepest part of who God is because when we make disciples who are baptized into the name or into the characteristic and the characteristics and the existence of the Trinity, the warm relationship, loving relationship and community of the Trinity, our mission is rooted in the very fact that God is triune. We are to make disciples because God is Trinity. Now, I'll tell you this. We, we, again, we've done a lot of this and we've seen it touch down into several areas of how we relate to God primarily, how we think about him, how we think about marriage, right? It's, it, it touches down in a lot of places. But where can we ultimately land this? How do we want to land this into the theme of what we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks? And I want to do that by just simply asking the question, okay, God is triune, so what? So what? What, what, what does that change? What, what difference does that make? God is triune, so what? Again, so we've done a lot of head work. I am asking God, would you come and do heart work now? So let's, let's try to press into this. Here's where I think this ought to land for us. And, and we have those, those three statements of the Trinity. And I also want you to leave walking away with this big point for the morning. This is what I'm trying to get at. Because God is triune, loving relationship is central to his being, making all he is supremely delightful. That's a mouthful. But try to describe God in a sentence. Good luck. Can we read this together? One, two, three. Because God is triune, loving relationship is central to his being, making all he is supremely delightful. So think about it. If it be true, and since it is true, that God is Trinity, and he existed in eternity past before creation even began, then for eternity he has been in relationship God's existence was defined by relationship from the start. Actually, even before the start. And what did that relationship look like? Well, Jesus told us exactly that in, in John 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying to his father and he says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. <laughs> so before God ever created, before he ever ruled over the world, before anything else, this God was a loving father giving life to and delighting in his son through the fellowship of the spirit. At the center of who God is, is loving relationship. That's why we see 1 John chapter 4. Verses seven through nine say this, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. 
Meaning it comes from him. We wouldn't know what love is apart from him. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is what? Love. God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Guys, God could not be love if he were not this first. God could not be love if he were not Trinity. So try to, try to track with me here. I, it, it took me like several weeks to even track with this. If there were nobody to love, since love ultimately in its root definition is others facing then God would have needed to create so he could have someone to love in order to be who he is. Again, here we are giving God life, if that be the case. But because God is Trinity, then we know that God wasn't this needy, desperate, solitary, and selfish God who decided to just all of a sudden create for himself because he just got tired of singing all by myself. I don't want to be that anymore, so I'm going to create. No, that's not what God is pictured at. He is this bountiful, loving, self-giving, life-giving Trinity who overflows in love and delight so much so that he determined to create. He created out of an overflow of love, not out of need, because he is Trinity. Central to the existence of God is loving relationship, which means that what God is inviting us into at the heart of the gospel is not simply, hey, be a better person. No, what God is inviting us into at the heart of the gospel is enjoying the loving relationship of the Trinity, to delight in it, to experience it, enjoying God, the Father, through union with the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit. So because God is Trinity, he is chiefly above all things love, who before all things else could never be anything but love. And guys, I, I hope you're seeing this. Having a triune God changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. I mean, so far, hasn't what we've talked about given a different shade to the personality of God, to our picture of God? Doesn't it, it, it make it a bit more colorful in a sense? Not because he's becoming more colorful, but our perspective of him is aligning to the reality of his existence, right? Right? The, the, the irony couldn't be any thicker than this. The Trinity, which we usually just kind of throw off and say, uh, it's irrelevant, uh, I'm kind of uncomfortable, I don't really want to touch it, it's, it's almost peculiarly irrelevant, the Trinity turns out to be the source of everything that is good in Christianity. The, the, the triune being of God is like the vital oxygen that the Christian breathes. It's what gives us life and joy. Because God is life and joy. Because he is Trinity. I mean, this changes the flavor of, of every word that we attribute to our God. It changes the meaning of Every attribute that we assign to him. 
Guys, the Trinity is the truth that shapes and beautifies all other truths about God. It's what makes God supremely delightful because we know at his center, he is in loving relationship. This fact that God is Trinity makes God ultimately desirable and delightful above all things. So for example, God's sovereignty, right? That's a, that's a key word, maybe a hot topic. God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control of all things. Because God is Trinity, because God ultimately invited us in to enjoy God as father, then I absolutely, beyond a shadow of doubt, want my heavenly father to be in control of every facet of my life. Because if he is my father, then he has every desire of good for me. And his providence and his sovereignty isn't him trying to seek control as a ruler or a tyrant. It is him being a father. He rules as a father. Or what about, what about his forgiveness? If God weren't Trinity, his forgiveness would be more so, oh gosh, if I have to forgive them, geez, whatever. No, but because God is triune, at the heart of forgiveness is a father saying, I want my child back and I will bear the weight of their iniquity so that I can have them back in relationship with me. Or, or, or what about his anger? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Because God is triune, it means that his anger will wage war against and destroy every weapon that stands against us and every threat that endangers us whom he loves. Because every part of what we have talked about in Exodus 34 for the last 10 weeks, that our God, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, won't clear the guilty, right? right? He is just. All of those truths take a different shape when we put it in the Trinity. It takes on more color as we place it into the triuneness of our God, where perfect love and warm relationship meets in unity and perfection. So if you and I decide that the Trinity is irrelevant, then you and I lose a God of love. And if we lose a God of love, we lose everything else. We lose his forgiveness. We lose his grace. We lose his mercy because all of those things are rooted in the very truth that God is love and truth finds its existence in the fact that God is Trinity. So do you see how it's a domino effect? Or better yet, do you see how vital it is for us to understand and love and enjoy the triuneness of our God? There will we understand love and in love, we understand everything else about him because his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness and kindness, his justice is all rooted in the promise and truth that God is love. That would not be true if he were not Trinity. So is this not a God that we can really want? Isn't this a God that we can supremely delight in? Because this is the shape of our gospel. 
This is the truth of the good news. This is at the heart of the Christian life. In the end, it all depends on this. Guys, humanity's biggest problem isn't simply or merely that we strayed away and through Jesus were brought back as law-abiding citizens. That's not the core of the gospel. No, we are brought back as beloved children of God. Christianity isn't mere behavior modification. It's not you trying to keep the rules of God that you now agree with are good. That's not at the core of the gospel. It is much deeper. It is knowing and enjoying our triune God for eternity, who at his center is loving relationship. This is the shape of the gospel. God is inviting us in through reconciliation provided by his son, whom he raised from the dead by the power of the spirit. He's inviting us back into enjoyment of the Trinity, of the Father in union with the Son through the fellowship of the Spirit. This changes absolutely everything. So I need to ask you, is God giving you a glimpse of his glory right now? Isn't it beautiful? You know, I realize that some of us have heard a different gospel preached, not one that was false, but one that wasn't full. And what I mean by that is at the core of the gospel, salvation is just simply you becoming right with God and walking away. Or you become right with God and now your goal is just to obey everything that he says. Those are true, but Satan can use those to deceive us into a works-based gospel that sounds like it's by grace alone. So how many of us would say, man, I, I, I've missed this. I've absolutely missed this. And I didn't realize how much I missed it. That, that Jesus saved me so that I can know what love is in relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's why we multiply faithful followers of Jesus. Because in following Jesus, we're not just obedient to his commands. We are in pure, loving relationship with his dad in heaven. That's what it ultimately means to follow Jesus. It's to enjoy relationship with God. So some of us in here probably need to go before the Lord and, and just kind of tell him, God, I, I realize I've got this wrong for too many years. I'm sorry that I'm just now getting this. For others of you, this isn't foundational, like you've already found this in your foundations in the gospel and you've enjoyed the relationship with God. But I believe that there are some of us in here who have misunderstood the gospel, that it's simply so you can be counted right. But to the end of that, it is so that you can enjoy God forever in the warm intimacy of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the Trinity.
So would we just bow our heads and close our eyes for a second as we kind of let this sit in our souls? Because at the root of this, this changes absolutely everything. God, we come to you, our Father in heaven. God, some, for some reason, you loved us so much that you were willing to send your Son, the only begotten, the unique Son of God, to not just simply make us in right standing, but to win us back into the warm relationship of love that you have gotten to experience for the rest of eternity. And now because of Jesus, we as the church get to experience for the rest of eternity. God, sorry for how we've started the gospel in Genesis 3. Where it's just simply, we did wrong and we need to be fixed. God, we believe that you being in Trinity shapes the whole gospel into warm relationship. And I think a lot of us kind of knew that from afar but I praise you for the work of grace that you've done today by your spirit to root that into the very existence of you being the three and one father, spirit, and son. One God, three persons. God, forgive us for the ways that we've distorted that with petty illustrations. Forgive us for the ways that we've distorted that with the one illustration that you said was the, the best in creation so far. And forgive us for how we've let a works-based mentality shape how we view you. Because God, when we see you, ultimately we see, according to how you've revealed yourself, a delighting father who loves his children. So God, help us to understand and relate to you as Trinity. Help us to fully be impacted by the truth of this and not only the, the gospel that we live and love, but in the gospel that we preach. God, we do love you deeply and we thank you that you first loved us. And actually, we thank you that you first ultimately loved your son and spirit in that warm relationship. Thank you for inviting us in to enjoy it for the rest of eternity. I pray that today, if somebody does not know that relationship has misunderstood this gospel, I pray that today they would not walk out of here still believing it, but that you would convict their hearts and that you would invite them in at this moment for the rest of eternity, they would know what it looks like to enjoy this relationship with you. God, you can do that work. So I pray that you would, in the powerful name of Jesus, your son, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Guys, let's all stand as I pray for you as we go forward. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Let's root this in the Trinity, right? May the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, opposite. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever as you go forward. May this week in your life be radically transformed by this truth. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.